I don't bump into many people who say, oh, it's all the same, or mm -hmm. oh, Canada, United States, what's the difference? No, mm -hmm. I find polls to be quite sophisticated about the difference between the two. This is not an only sport project. Uh, this project is, like I said about the doors and the doors and the doors, you know, this is something bigger, something stronger and wider. We organized a very successful um, hockey game. It's a hockey team, a Polish hockey team of celebrities. And then we as an embassy put together uh, a team, mm -hmm. very, very amateur, and we used it to raise money uh, for three charities. When I met my my wife and I traveled for the first time to Poland, I was a little bit nervous because I thought, okay, now she's coming home with a German boyfriend who knows what, what might happen. Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. Probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland? Sausages. <laughs> Pierogies? Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're gonna try to show you. I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 43rd episode of Polcast. Do you remember when we talked about Help, a beautiful and historically important peninsula in the Baltic Sea? Well, the Polish name sounds exactly the same as the English word Hell. After talking about Hell, let's talk about Paradise. Paradise in Polish is Rai and it's the name of a very attractive and well-known place in Poland. Paradise Cave, Jaskinia Rai, is a 240-meter or 790-foot-long limestone cave located inside the Malik Hill, close to Kielce in southern Poland, formed during the Middle Devonian era approximately 350 million years ago. Only 180 meters, which is about 590 foot section of the cave, is open to the visitors. Despite its small size, it is regarded as one of Poland's most beautiful caves and attracts numerous visitors. It is known for many spectacular and well-preserved dripstones. The corridors lead through five chambers and caverns full of stalactites nicknamed macaroni, stalagmites, small lakes and columns of calcified rock deposited over tens of thousands of years. In order to maintain an internal temperature of 8 to 10 degrees, 46 to 50 Fahrenheit, and 95% humidity required to preserve the cave, a maximum of 15 people, accompanied by a guide, are admitted to enter the cave every 15 minutes. The cave was discovered in 1963 by two students of a local technical school. After extensive research and documentation by a team of geologists at the Polish Geological Institute, it was opened to the public in 1972. 
In the cave pavilion, there's a museum exhibiting flint tools used by Neanderthal man who lived there 50,000 years ago. The remains of prehistoric animals, mammoth, woolly rhinoceros, cave bear, as well as a Neanderthal family camp with three life-size figures. While in Poland in 2015 as a member of the official delegation accompanying the then Prime Minister of Canada, Stephen Harper, I met and interviewed in Warsaw the then Canada's ambassador to Poland, Alexandra Bugailiskis. The year 2017 is a special year for Canada, which celebrates its 150th birthday. A series of conferences and negotiations led to the creation of the Dominion of Canada by establishing on July 1, 1867, the Confederation, the union of the British North American colonies of New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and the province of Canada, which later on became Quebec and Ontario. Canada 150, as this anniversary is called, is a huge celebration of Canada both at home and wherever Canada is present, also in Poland. During my most recent visit to Poland in April, I visited the Canadian Embassy in Warsaw to interview Canada's present ambassador to Poland, Stephen de Boer. You've been here how long now? I've been here since November of 2015. What do you think Canada is well known in Poland? Absolutely. It's really quite surprising. Everybody says there's over a million Canadians that, that claim Polish origin. But you don't really know what that means or what that feels like until you come to Poland. And very frequently when I meet people, they will say to me, I have a cousin who lives in Mississauga. I have a sister-in-law who's from Edmonton. So it, it really makes it quite, quite real. And so mm -hmm. I know that there's been years and years of, of Polish immigration to Canada, but the most recent waves really make that connection very strong. And Canada has a good reputation here. Oh, yeah. Polish people like Canada. It evokes some warm and fuzzy feelings, mm -hmm, I would mm -hmm. say. But don't you find that Canada is almost like the United States, except that maybe colder? Isn't that what do you find here? Or do you find that people are really well informed? I, I find them to be quite well informed. Um, and I would also say that perhaps the patterns of immigration to the United States are somewhat different mm -hmm. because. Uh, the, the stories that I hear are, are real. They're about family members. They're about their most recent trips. And so people who have family in Canada, people who travel to Canada, know, of course, there's a difference between Canada and the yeah. United States. I don't bump into many people who say, oh, it's all the same, or mm -hmm. oh, Canada, United States, what's the difference? No, mm -hmm. I find polls to be quite sophisticated about the difference between the two. In terms of what you do at the embassy, what do you do in order to promote Canadian values, you know, the models that we believe in? We do a whole range of, of things, and basically we'll do anything that will work. So we have social media channels where we have Facebook, we have Twitter, so we will talk about what we're doing as an embassy, what we're doing out in the community, but also we use that as an opportunity to talk about what's happening in Canada. Uh, right now, Canada at 150 is a, is a very big deal, so we talk about the fact that 
all the parks in in Canada, all the national parks are free. So we we say, well, we think Poles should know this. And if you're thinking about coming to Canada, this is a good year um, to do that. So, and we also we meet with a whole range of organizations. So we meet with Canadian businesses that are here, mm-hmm. um, and then we talk about the Canadian businesses that we're meeting and the promotion of employment practices, for example, and labor practices, and the sorts of jobs that Canadian investors are bringing uh, to Canada. We talk to universities. We talk to civil society. Um, we talk to politicians. Uh, we talk to politicians who are in the government party. We talk to opposition uh, politicians about what's happening in Canada and the values that we hold dear um, in Canada. We talk to prominent Canadians and work with prominent Canadians uh, in Poland. A really good example is Barbara Kirschenblatt-Gimlet, who is the, or was the curator of the permanent exhibit at the Poland Museum. A great friend of a Canadian, a great friend of Canada, well known in Poland, and so she's someone that we can work very closely with. Another one is is a famous historian, um, Alexandra Ritchie, um, who's written about the Warsaw Uprising. She's also at Collegium Civitas. We've arranged to have Canadian speakers speak at our university. We've involved her in embassy events. Uh, we also work with organizations that promote values that our government is promoting. So mm-hmm. right now, um, we're working quite closely with the Coalition Against Homophobia. Uh, we've hosted an event for an organization for trans- transgendered uh, Poles. Uh, we'll be in the Equality Parade once again. Uh, we have been for for many years because this is a really great way to uh, to be visible to uh, to Poland and to Poles. We also spend a lot of time talking about the fact that we are NATO members with Poland because this underscores the really close alliance between Canada and Poland. The fact that we are allies, that we supported Poland's accession to NATO from the get go. And also that we have troops here in Poland. We've had 220 troops here since May of 2014. They've been rotating through, but on a persistent basis, they've never left. And we keep we keep reminding the Poles, the Ministry of Defense, for example, that we are here with them on the eastern flank. And I'm really pleased that when we moved to Latvia as a um, as part of an, the enhanced forward presence that. Poles will be coming uh, with us, so the the alliance and the the relationship will will continue. Another way that we reach out to Poles is actually the use of this physical space. We have this fence along Pinkna, which is a busy street, and we've used that to have various exhibits. Uh, we had an exhibit about Operation Reassurance in the lead up to the NATO summit, the Warsaw summit. We had an exhibit about a downed plane and Canadian airmen who died trying to bring supplies to Warsaw during the Warsaw Uprising. We had a display on the Arctic. Uh, we had a display actually for the launch of Air Canada Rouge, where we had these fantastic photographs from the ten provinces and the three territories, just to, well, to talk about Air Canada Rouge launching. Um, their flights to Warsaw, but also to show people, the people of Warsaw and, and Poles, what Canada looks like. And they weren't necessarily typical uh, photographs, but they were beautiful. Uh, we had a display of um, soldiers who were wounded during the um, 
the Maidan um, protests in Ukraine. Another way of us to show Poland that we're standing in solidarity with uh, Ukraine against Russian aggression, but also in support of democracy, which is something that the Poles share with us. So it's a vi visible and tangible way to reach out to Poles. Is there anything that the embassy does, open lectures or meetings for people to, to, to talk about Canada? Do you do that too? We do a series of things. There's Explore Canada, which is for students, but there's also, I lecture, for example, I, I have gone to various universities, I've talked about um, what it's like to live beside the United States, I've talked about multiculturalism a number of times. I gave a lecture at Jagiellonian University on Canada as a post-national state. Um, my lecture was supposed to have a question mark at the end of it, but it was just stated there as a fact. It's, it's fascinating to deliver those types of messages to uh, to students. We're mindful that we're talking about what we do in Canada. We're not prescribing what Poland should mm -hmm. do, but it's interesting for them to hear how other countries are approaching um, these issues. We host a lot of events here at um, the embassy. Mm -hmm. Some of them are quite formal. Uh, we hosted a reception, for example, for members of parliament, the Canadian members of parliament on the Foreign Relations and Development Committee. And that was for uh, Polish government officials. Um, we had a, had a very big reception in the middle of the winter for the business community, where we had uh, significant representation from the Ministry of Development. We had a signing ceremony here when they, we had a change of command for our land task force. Um, when we opened the exhibit on the fence for Operation Reassurance, we had the Minister of Defense here opening, mm -hmm. opening it for me. I just hosted a lunch for uh, seven students, six from Queens and one from Simon Fraser, who are spending a semester at the Warsaw School of Economics, which is a fantastic experience for them and a really great way of fostering yeah. uh, Polish-Canadian uh, academic relations. And we have this fantastic organization, and I'm always surprised, so pleasantly surprised that they exist, the Polish Association of Canadian Studies. Mm -hmm. And there are faculty members throughout Poland who uh, have made their academic career to study various aspects of, of Canada, be it literature or politics or history. That is so, so fantastic for us because we, we have a, a cheering section. One of them, Marcin Gabrysh, the, the former president, probably is more informed as to what's happening in Canada on a day-by-day -day basis than I am, um, and he tweets uh, frequently about what's happening um, in Canada. He did this wonderful lecture that he put up on YouTube about a Polish Arctic um, expedition in, I think, 1974 or 1975, which I'd never heard of. Uh, before it was stopped by Canadian officials, but it was fascinating to to hear about about that, and it's a wonderful way to talk about the Arctic, which is of importance to uh, to Canada, and also to talk about how Poland uh, plays into the any discussions or exploration of the Arctic. And what's the plan for the big 150? There's a number of of plans. We organized a very successful. Um, hockey game. It's a hockey team, a Polish hockey team of celebrities, uh, mostly in the performing arts, uh, although they had one former NHL player 
who was their ringer. And then we as an embassy put together uh, a team, mm -hmm. very, very amateur, but we were able to, to pull it together. And we used it to raise money uh, for three charities. And we were astounded as to the turnout. And we were all wearing uh, Canada 150 jerseys with the 150 logo. And so we that was our, our kickoff event. I think the other big signature event that we have this year is an exhibit of 150 years of Polish immigration to Canada that we're doing with the Immigration Museum in Gdynia. And that will be opening as close to July 1st as possible. Although we will be also opening a sort of a reprise of, of that entire exhibit here on our fence. Uh, so p the people of Warsaw can see uh, what this exhibit is is about. And that's generated a lot of, um, I think, a lot of excitement and a lot of interest. Because an immigration story is something that Canadians can relate to. And it very much celebrates the contribution that Poland and Poles made to the Canadian mosaic. And so it's it's very much, it's in keeping with Canada at 150, and it's very much a thank you uh, to Poland and the Polish uh, diaspora. And it's, again, because Canada is a country of immigration, we, we are familiar with a museum like uh, the Immigration Museum in Gdynia. We're hoping that this exhibit will um, will come to, to Canada, hopefully to Pier 21. Mm -hmm. um, and also the Polish embassy in, in Ottawa is very interested in, in this exhibit as well, and, and we'll be sharing the panels that we'll have on our fence on Pinkna with them as well, so they can, they can talk about this, mm -hmm. this story. It's a very exciting, um, very exciting story for both Poland um, and Canada. We have another anniversary this year that we're very proud of, and that is 75 years of diplomatic relations uh, with Poland. We had a celebration of that. We unveiled a portrait of Vanier, uh, the same man who was who became our governor general, um, in the big reception hall upstairs because he was the first envoy to Poland. We commenced our diplomatic relations in in 1942, and it's interesting for two reasons. One is because Canada was just finding its way as an international actor uh, in World War II, and also because we recognized the the government in exile in, in London. Now, the diplomatic relations went up and down for obvious reasons, um, and they were not particularly rich and fulfilling during during communism, but we were there for the entire time, and now we're in a much better place to celebrate 75 years. How do you feel in Poland? I love it here. I think the biggest surprise probably is the level of warm feelings for, for Canadians. So to say you are the Canadian ambassador opens a lot of doors. So that is very helpful to me. Um, helpful for me to do my job, but also just makes my life easier. Uh, but it's also a very easy country to uh, to live in i haven't encountered any difficulties apart from the language but even there i'm always gratified that poles are willing to play charades with me so i can get what i need when i'm uh, when i'm out and about so it has been an enormously gratifying and pleasant experience to be here in uh, in warsaw the lack of sun in the winter surprised me 
people said, oh, it's not very cold here in the winter. And I thought, well, this will be easy. But I did not find the winters to be particularly easy. And of course, I get no sympathy from any poll when I complain about the winter because they say, what are you talking about? It's minus 20 in Ottawa. I think, yes, but it's minus 20 with snow and sun. But look at it today. It's it's full flight of spring, and it's April the 5th, so I'm willing to forgive the cloudy, <laughs> overcast winter. It's minus 5 and, and snow in where I live, in Canada. My sister is in St. John's, and they just uh-huh. got another two feet of snow. Oh, really? Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, this is pretty pleasant. Please visit our website, mypolcast.com, to get more information about the Canadian Embassy in Warsaw and about Canada 150. When you visit Poland, like we did recently, you hear many languages spoken by people there. That's because of a growing number of foreigners who come to Poland, and not just as tourists. According to Eurostat, the European Union Statistics Agency, among the European Union countries, Poland is chosen as number two country to live in, just behind the UK. For the third year in a row, Poland has issued the second largest number of long-term visas and residence permits. Interestingly, on the list, Poland is followed by France. But the number of visas and permits issued by France is less than a half of those issued by Poland. Who knows, maybe after the Brexit actually takes effect, Poland will make it to the leading position. A recent study by Morrison.pl examined the reasons why foreigners come to Poland, how they feel there, and where they come from. Most foreigners living in Poland are Ukrainians, Russians, and Belarusians. But there are also a great number of those who come from Germany, Italy, China, and France. In 2016, more than 234,000 people got a Polish residence permit. But this is just the official number. That mainly refers to foreigners from outside the European Union. The actual number of foreigners living in Poland may be even a few times higher because there are those who never legalized their residence or those who got the necessary documents in the Polish consulates abroad. According to the magazine Politica, in 2015, in Ukraine alone, 925,000 working visas were issued. So why do they come? Often there is more than one reason. In 51% the reason is work, 42% come to study, 18% gave family as a reason, 3% came to because of a relationship, and 3% are looking for a change in life. Now, do they learn the language when they come? 44.6% don't, 41.6% do, and the rest, 14%, don't, but they plan to. Of those that do, nearly 57% admit that they're at the elementary level, while every sixth knows just a few basic phrases. However, as many as 44% would rather stick to English than study Polish. 42% of those who are already learning take language courses or private lessons. No doubt, the language is a barrier. Although it doesn't prevent foreigners from integrating, making Polish friends, and generally enjoying the experience of living in Poland, 
Only 12.5% of foreigners living in Poland have mastered the language at the advanced level. Like Richard Washington, a Brit living in Poland, whom we presented to you in our last episode 42. In our last episode 42, you heard part one of my conversation with Johannes Schneider, born and educated in Germany, but also having lived in Austria, now a citizen of Canada, married to a Pole. We talked about Poland's and Germany's painful past, World War II. Here is part two of our interview. In our first interview, when you talked about Magda and, and your uh, relationship, you mentioned that you felt a little uneasy, a little apprehensive, um, knowing that you're a German and she's a Pole. Yeah, so when you, when you grow up as a, um, as a German, you are aware that quite often you are prob you're probably not the most popular person in the room. And I remember when I was 10 years old, I was riding with my mother in the, in the, in the Paris metro. We started uh, talking German and older people moved away. To be honest, now knowing the history, I can understand that someone who really suffered doesn't want to listen to that language once more. But I have to say, in regards to Poland, so I grew up in, in West Germany. For me, the end, it was all the, the Eastern Bloc. The entire thing was the Soviet Union. And I had very little exposure to, to Eastern Europe, except uh, East Germany, where I traveled twice before the, the Iron Curtain came down. So I actually, I didn't know Poland at all. And when I met my, my wife and I traveled for the first time to Poland, I was a little bit nervous because I thought, okay, now she's coming home with a German boyfriend who knows what, what might happen, right? I don't know. And then I, I asked her and, and about the family history and did many people die during World War II? And she said, yes, uh, the, the brother of her grandmother died during the war as a soldier. And I just wanted to know to, to be like sensitive in this regard. But they were very nice to me from the very first moment and embraced me and very, really, really kind. And at some point we, we started talking about uh, history and World War II. And it turned out actually that the brother of my wife's grandmother, he was actually a German soldier and he died in Denmark as a German soldier. Because apparently, I, I wasn't aware of that fact, many people in Poland were kind of in between Polish and German culture. They, they spoke both languages, and at some point they had to decide if they want to become German or Polish, and one part of the family became German and the other part became Polish, which also showed me that it's, it's not so easy to draw the line between different nations or cultures, so there are so many overlaps, and it's not as simple as it looks sometimes from a, from a distance. So other, other than that time when you were 10 with your mother in Paris, have you ever felt uh, some sort of uh, negative feelings towards you just because you're German? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It happened in Italy, in, in France. Uh, or I remember I, I, I spent many summer vacations um, as a teenager uh, in Montreal with very good friends, uh, Franco-Canadian friends. And whenever I met family or friends of them and they realized I'm German, one of the very first questions is, is usually, what did you learn about Hitler or what did you learn about World War II? It's, it's totally understandable. So you're, you're very aware that 
you are part of this terrible history. Is World War II a topic discussed all the time in Germany? Like, for example, is there literature written about it? And I mean fiction, for example. Are there films being made which are, um, you know, feature films? Or is it something that's sitting there, everybody knows about it, but it's not really a topic of discussion? No, it's a big topic. It's a really, really big topic. I have been told that actually until the 1980s, Yeah, people didn't want to talk about it, and I guess especially in the 1950s and 60s, and, and it was kind of a taboo topic. And, but that changed really dramatically, and, and I remember growing up in Germany, uh, especially in the 90s or so, they, there was a lot, many movies, many documentaries. But the, the difficulty is always that you cannot be critical enough, but at the, at the same time, can it be entertaining? Is it allowed to be entertaining or not? The moment you are you are entering this field, you are you are stepping in a minefield because so many things can can go wrong, and I think that happens all the time. Do Germans have any special feelings or special emotions towards Poles because of what happened? Actually, surprisingly, uh, little. I don't know why. That's a very good question. Or oh, the attitude towards the Jews, towards the state of Israel, and, and that's a very present and clear thing. Surprisingly, Poland, not so much, I would say, which is a big surprise because I think actually that, that Poland and Russia actually were the, the, the nations who suffered the most. And, why, why do you uh, think that's the way it is? I'm not sure. I, I would say probably it's, it's because of, of communism and the, the Iron Curtain. So East Germany, I think they had a very different attitude towards the history because they said we are communists, so we, are, we, are, we have nothing to do with Nazi Germany and we are kind of the, the opposite. Where actually I think they were very close. They, somehow they even con continued many ideas from Nazi Germany. The totalitarian ideas and all the uniforms and marches. That would be quite unpopular to say in Germany, what I say now, but I think... The problems with neo-Nazis and, and far right-wing movements is especially problematic in East Germany. And even today, uh, more than 20 years after the Iron Curtain came down, you can see that in East Germany the, the view towards the own hist history was completely different. There was very little relationship between Poland and, and West Germany yeah, between 1945 and, and 1990. Do you think that young people in Germany should be brought to Poland, to Auschwitz or whatever place like that, almost the same way as Jewish young people come there, you know, as, as, a, as a compulsory program on their March of the Living? Oh, for sure, yeah. I think it should be mandatory for, for every school kid to visit a, a concentration camp, for sure. And how many And of them do? I think most of them do. The, the, the thing is, there are not so many in Germany itself, right? There, most of them were in, in Poland. So in Germany, I, I just know Dachau, close to, to Munich, and then there's Buchenwald in eastern Germany, and I think Bergen-Belsen, close to Hamburg. You need to travel a little bit, but I think that should be, that should be mandatory. I really think that people need to be educated about it because it is kind of a timeless story. And I have to say, in my opinion, uh, I think what happened, especially in regards to the Holocaust, is really the biggest atrocity in, in human history. There were many mass killings and genocides and it's still happening today. 
But I think to this level of precision and with this idea behind of being superior to everyone else and this kind of industrial way of killing millions of people, I think that's really that's unique in, in human history. Also, especially coming from, from the center of Europe where so many roots of humanism are and... and I find it very interesting if you look at the history of the city of Weimar in, in East Germany. It's a little town of, I don't know, 50,000 people, and that used to be home of uh, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe and Schiller and many thinkers like Herder, like a capital of, of German culture. And so many important ideas developed out of this town and I don't know how it happened, but, but the Nazis constructed the concentration camp of Buchenwald just outside of Weimar. So in my opinion, Weimar really represents the very best and the, and the absolutely worst of, of German history and of German culture. So I think actually Weimar would be really a very good destination for, for all German school kids, and, and they should go to Weimar, all of them. So you probably heard of the new the new party in Germany, the, the alternative for Germany. And they're looking into a completely different direction, which, which is, in my opinion, very disturbing. What I'm a little bit afraid that ideas like that and Nazi ideas are coming up somehow again, caused by, by, by all the refugee crises and financial crises in the EU, and very, very strange things are happening right now. And... I think that's that's a big reason for concern. Uh, I don't think it, it's it's really comparable to the 1930s because the the majority of the German people they think completely differently. I, I really I, I think it's it's a it's it's a minority. But it's just 80 years ago or 70 years ago. It's not such a long time. Taking that into perspective, it's I think you have to be very aware that things like this can repeat somehow, and and you have to to fight the beginning of, of something like that growing again. And, and if I look right now what happens in, in Europe and all the xenophobia and this shift towards really hardcore right-wing parties, I think people have to be very aware of the danger. Yeah? As always, we encourage you to visit our website, mypodcast.com, where you can get more information and leave your comments and ideas. Smacznego. We're here talking about our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two heritage Polish cookbooks called Classic Polish Recipes and Classic Polish Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations. But updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or glass of that. Pork has been the meat of first choice in Poland for decades, and it's the basis for a great many comfort food recipes. We love our pork, grilled, braised, baked, stewed in sauerkraut, or almost any way possible. But one of our favorite cuts for serving pork is the common chop. In recent years, the pigs we see in the U.S. or Canada are specially bred for leanness. Since fat means flavor, today's pork is less flavorful, in our opinion, than the farm-bred pigs to which bakcha was accustomed. Back in her day, 
Polish pigs on a pre-World War II farm were fed a diet of potatoes, sour milk, old cabbages, and corn. And that's why the milder Polish hams became so popular all over the world. Today, pork is a big business everywhere, and pigs are especially bred to be disease-resistant, leaner, and to yield more usable pounds per pig. So the product we see in our grocery stores is generally leaner. That's also why the government experts now say that pork roasts and thick chops can be safely cooked to medium at a final internal cooked temperature of 145 to 150 degrees Fahrenheit, followed by a three-minute rest time. All this means is that today's pork is healthier, but it also has less intense flavor in our judgment. So we like to buy the bone-in center-cut chops to get the best taste. Today's recipe is one of our favorite ways to prepare chops, especially if there's too much snow or rain outside to fire up the grill. Look for the bone-in style, maybe with a little fat on the edges, and don't trim all that goodness away too soon. You'll need six medium bone-in center-cut loin chops, a half inch to three-quarters inches thick, flour, a couple of eggs, unseasoned breadcrumbs, panko style works the best, marjoram, which is a favorite of Polish cuisine, bacon drippings, and cooking oil. Season the flour with salt and pepper to taste. Season the breadcrumbs with more salt and pepper, plus the marjoram. Trim the excess fat off the chops, but leave some for flavor. Dredge the chops in seasoned flour, then dip them in the egg mixture. Roll them in breadcrumbs and lightly press the crumbs into the surface of each chop. Brown the chops on both sides in hot oil. Place them in a single layer in a large baking dish and finish in a preheated oven at 325 degrees Fahrenheit for 15 to 20 minutes. Using your instant read meat thermometers, the chops will be done at about 140 degrees Fahrenheit. But if you're nervous, make a little split next to the bone, which takes longer to reach the right temp. All the experts say that a little pink is perfectly okay. Peter thinks it's juicier, but I like it done a little bit more. Serve these chops with red cabbage on potatoes mashed or boiled, or on a bed of stewed sauerkraut that has been flavored with bits of bacon and caraway. Oh, that's just heaven in my mouth. Hey, hon, could this be our dinner for tomorrow night? The full recipe for these chops and information about our heritage cookbooks is on our website, www.polishclassiccooking.com. Just scroll down to the article posted on November 17th, of 2014. Tomasz Kozłowski is a psychologist by profession, and his life passion is extreme sports, mainly skydiving, but he was also involved in many dangerous activities, such as mountain rescues. Those are not so distant from his work, where he deals with other people's fears, risk-taking, and decision-making. His most daring feat was a record-high skydive jump from the stratosphere. First such accomplishment of a Polish team of skydivers who set an unofficial world record and three official European records. This experience resulted in his book, The History of a Thousand Fears, a book about fears as he describes it, 
or an extreme transcript of the continuous overcoming of our own limits and difficulties while leaving our comfort zone. Tomasz is now preparing for a new feat. Tomek, when you were a little boy, what did you dream of? Well, I had only two dreams. I wanted to be a mountain lifeguard because we were close to the mountain. And my second dream was to be a skydiver because uh, in my town there was a special forces unit and I saw the skydivers, the paratroopers, uh, jump from the helicopter. And I remember that moment. I was six years old. I remember the moment when I decided to be a skydiver. And how old were you when you made your first jump? Uh, I was uh, 37. Yeah, it took a while, but uh, between 6 and 37, I was a mountain rescuer uh, for 17 years. You know, it, it wasn't the way that, that I decided to be a mountain lifeguard and I just go through. No, it was just a coincidence. When I was 6, I met the lifeguard when my father took me to the mountain and I asked him what to do to be a mountain lifeguard. And he said... You have to move to Yelanyagura, you have to live in the, in, in the mountain, and uh, you have to do a lot of steps. And I uh, joined the rescue team when I was 25. I just wanted to be a, a mountain lifeguard. I didn't know in that time that I will be a mountain rescue instructor and I do that I will do all the steps in this profession. And what made you go through all these steps to decide to go further, not just to be a lifeguard, but to be a rescuer, which is a bit different thing, right? Oh, okay. The going on the, on the top, on the Mount Everest, or every top uh, on your life, you're always doing only one step. It is impossible to do two steps in one time. So after one step, or after one door, when you will open the door, you see another one, and another one, and another one. So let's focus on here and now, and then you will see another step, another step, another step. So I understand that people are planning to be a rescuer or mountain lifeguard or, or, you know, or a skydiver, but it's impossible to be a master, you know, to be a champion just after the first step. I've never planned to be a European record holder. When I started to be a skydiver, I decided to jump six times. And then I said, okay, let's jump 12 times. <laughs> uh, but it never was in my plan, you know, to, to do some uh, stratosphere jump. But everything basically that you do in life is about extremes, extreme sports. Even your work as a psychologist, you work with people who've been through through very extreme situations. What is it? What, why do you do that? What for? This is the question to, for skydivers. Why people are jumping from perfectly good plane? And the answer is because the door is open. This is something like this in the psychology as well and in the mountain as well. Because, you know, the, the answer can be because this is possible. People who, who know nothing about skydiving or this kind of stuff, they don't know that this is possible. But if you are going into the profession and you realize that there's a rules which can uh, make you to, to, you know, to to go farther and farther, you will understand that you can do that. And I think every one of us can jump from stratosphere. It is just uh, the matter of belief in yourself, or even if you don't believe, just do the step, one and another, one and another. So especially if you mean about the skydiving, this is a very, very safe sport, because uh, this sport got a very strong rules. And if you respect the rules, nothing will happen. Skydiving itself is all right, but you know, jumping from the stratosphere, which is what you did, just talk talk to us a little bit about it. What was the height? How long did it take? What was the speed? It was the jump we made uh, two and a half year ago. 
And the preparing to this job took us almost three years. Uh, why it was uh, so difficult? Because we jumped uh, in the group of free skydivers. It wasn't the jump that, you know, you're going by yourself to free fall. But if you're going in the formation, the danger was that on such altitude what we had, we reached the altitude of 36,000 feet. So it was above 11 kilometers. Uh, the speed just on the beginning, it was 356 kilometers per hour. So it was really, really big speed. And uh, the danger was that we uh, could hit each other. And uh, the other problem is oxygen. There is almost no oxygen in, in such altitudes. So we had to have the uh, oxygen equipment. And we go up there by the hot air balloon. So we were the first skydiving formation uh, which jumped from the atmosphere from a hot air balloon. And it was, uh, it was difficult because, you know, in the, in the plane, in the aircraft, you are in the close case. And you've got the pilot who can, in one second, change the direction and go down. You cannot do that with, with the balloon. So in this project, there, in the basket, there was five of us. And 11 kilometers, we just jumped out. And the two pilots in the basket, they had a more difficult situation because they spent 40 minutes to go down. And it was the challenge. For me, this jump was one of the most important moments of my life because I was really, really afraid of it. I am not the kind of tough guy. <laughs> I'm just a normal person who is afraid to do such things. And uh, it was one of the most important moments of my life because I had a huge space for fighting with my fears. And I won with myself. I feel really good about this because I don't have to do anything, you know, to, to prove myself that I can do that. But I, I'm still afraid to, 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 to jump off the plane, out of the plane, the same like before. But now I know that the first moment of fighting with your fears is to accept one. Yes, we live in fears and this is part of our life. Fear, pain, sorrow, this kind of stuff we have to accept. To win. Mm -hmm. You wrote this book, The History of a Thousand Fears, so there obviously were lots and lots and lots of fears, which is really interesting because the book is about the preparation. The actual jump mm -hmm. is at the very, very end of the book and not much afterwards. Yes. So I want to mm -hmm. ask about after whether that made you less fearful generally in life? I know you are. You, you told me you are afraid every time you skydive, but, but how about life? I mean, did it change anything in your life? Did it make you less fearful? It gave you more comfort in life? You know, yes and no. Uh, no, because I still feel the fears like, like every normal person, but the, the time we're fighting with the fears is, is shorter. Because I accept, okay, I'm a weak person, I'm afraid. You know, this is not the pathological fear, it's just a fear like we feel in our lives. But, okay, 80% of, uh, of the power is enough. You know, I don't have to have all the time 100% of the fuel in my car. Half of it, it is enough to go out of the garage. And, you know, the, 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 the door of the garage is one door and another and another and another. And then, then you've got, you know, the, uh, the, the, the fuel station. The fuel station can be, you know, another step, another person, you know, another event in your life. And just do the first move. And for this, it, it is enough of 70% of the power. Well, after the stratosphere uh, jump, through which you broke a number of records, there's something that's coming up very soon in June, which has to do with your birthday. Tell us about this new project. You know, this is very tricky because this project uh, became in my, uh, you know, in my head seven years ago, just before the stratosphere, 
uh, I read the article about the American skydiver who was 80 years old and he jumped 89 times in, in one day. And I thought to myself, okay, I will do the same when I'll be 50. I was 43 years old in that time. And I said, okay, in seven years, I will do that. In last year, I thought, okay, I can wait two years. But one of the important rules for me in my life is to live here and now. And I said, okay, I, I will not wait these two years for B50. I will do that in, in 48th year of my life. And I will jump 48 times. But I would like to help some people. And every jump is for someone who needs, I don't know, wheelchair or some uh, difficult and expensive operation on this kind of stuff. For example, the second jump well before a two-years-old girl who, who've got some problems with the brain. But, you know, I've got right now about 100,000 zlotys, so this is about $25,000 for these people. And I'm just looking for the people who will join me and the companies who will give some money for, for just, just, just for poor people. And I feel better. I sleep better. I, this is uh, amazing. The helping people is amazing motivation to sport. <laughs> I know that it will be difficult for, my, for me, but I've got a strong motivation because behind my project is people's sorrow uh, and some tears and, and, and the problems. And even if I can do, you know, only 1% to help them, it will be one of the greatest projects in my life. You know, I'm preparing all the time. I'm thinking all the time about this. And I think, let's say, I will jump only 30 times or only 20 times. So I ask the special forces. We've got one of the best special forces unit here in Poland. And two of the soldiers will be waiting there. And if, uh, if I will fail, I don't know, I, I can break the leg. Uh, so they will jump the uh, rest of the jumps. To have these 48 jumps and to, to send the money for people. And right now, I'm focused on looking for some sponsors and, and, of course, on my trainings. One of the most important things in this project was three weeks ago, my son said to me, Daddy, I want to help you in your project. I said, how you can do that? And he said, I will buy one of the jumps from you. I said, really, how? And he said, I will pay for a wheelchair for a kid I know, and I will organize the money. To, to buy him a wheelchair because this uh, this boy uh, he got all the illnesses on this planet and and Adam said I will help him and he have right now almost six thousand zlotys and he needs only four. How old is Adam? He's fifteen years old. He's a teenager and he's he's collecting the money for this boy, and this is really really important for me as a father because I realize that my son is ready to go in life. You know, that he got the character, and I'm really, really happy about this. I'm 100% sure that he will survive. <laughs> Another funny thing is that he was the first person. I've got a couple of big companies who, who are the, you know, the sponsors, but he was the first. 15 years old boy. <laughs> I'm really, really proud of him. So this is not the only sport project. Uh, this project is, like I said about the doors and the doors and the doors, you know, this is something bigger, something stronger and wider. To get more information about Tomasz, his accomplishments and his new project, please visit our website, mypodcast.com.
In the first year of our podcast, we have covered a large number of stories and presented to you many interesting people. And it's our great pleasure to be able to update you on some of our interlocutors' new achievements, as well as some new developments in the stories we have featured. Ola Turkiewicz has been with our podcast since the very beginning. She composed, performed, and recorded all our jingles, including some new ones you are hearing for the first time in this episode. In our 7th and 21st episodes, we talk with Ola about her return from Canada to Poland and her series of independence concerts started in 2009, in which Polish patriotic songs are presented in the new and modern arrangements in her hybrid music style. Earlier this month, on May 3rd, Ola Trukiewicz with her husband Jacek Wiejski-Górski produced their annual independence concert dedicated to the anniversary of the May 3rd Constitution. The first constitution of Poland, the first in Europe, and the second in the world. The concert took place in the Warsaw Royal Castle. And Sergiusz Pinkwart. In our last episode, 42, we presented Sergiusz Pinkwart, journalist, author, blogger, and avid traveler who, together with his wife, publish a blog called Dziecko w Drodze, devoted to traveling the world with a young child. Here is an update. The three travelers, Sergiusz, his wife Magda, and their three-and-a-half-year-old son Hruczek, are on the road again, this time in Zanzibar, which they reached via London, Luxembourg, Munich, and Oman. Hrutek is making friends with kids of all nationalities and races, and the Pinkford family keep traveling. There's no stopping them. You've been listening to the 43rd episode of Polcast. Polcast is created, recorded, and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For a lot of additional information, multimedia, and links, please visit our website, mypolcast.com. And while you are there, please leave your comments and share with us your thoughts, reactions, and ideas. If you know of any interesting person or story that we should cover on Polcast, please let us know. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. Thank you for listening to Polcast. And it's the time for our end of episode music. The day we're editing the episode, we got very sad news about the passing of one of the Polish music legends, Zbigniew Wodecki a singer, composer, but also a virtuoso trumpet and violin player with extensive classical music education, loved by generations of fans, amazing connoisseur of music, and a wonderful person performing all over the world. One of his unforgettable hits is his song Zacznij od Bacha, Start from Bach. Why Bach? In one of his interviews, he demonstrates that jazz goes back to Bach. Bach was, in fact, the very first true jazz musician. A few hundred years later, French vocal ensemble swingle singers made one of his pieces into a real jazz gem. Here is a short clip from that interview. No, bo jazz już się zaczął. 
Zabacha. Bach był pierwszym jazzmenem, można powiedzieć. Tam pamadam pirim, 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 tim, tirim, 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 pirim, pirim. Jak do tego dołożyli kilkaset lat później jaki swinger singer z francuski zespół wokalny sekcję, to się okazało, że to jest dołożyli tylko sekcję. Tam tibidim, tirim, 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 tibidim, pirim, dum, 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 i ten Bach z sekcją z break cz, 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 poszło i się okazuje, że to jest jazzowa muzyka. Czysta jazzowa muzyka. Zbigniew Wodecki, who was only 67, will always be remembered and we thank him for his music and art. We leave you with his song about Bach, which he composed, sung and in which you hear his beautiful trumpet. Zbigniew Wodecki. Uczonych cicho przez noc A tu dzień wstaje już kolorowo Witaj, hej, hej Ty musisz wstać Bo słońce już zawiesza na szczytach wiesz Poranny swój szal I rusza cień w długi marsz Wokół drzew krząta się ptaków rzesza Witaj 